It's Krista Bontrager, and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go. Well, it was from Genesis to today. More than Hey everyone, welcome to week 34 of our Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. As we're going through the Bible this year, we're going through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one. And this week, we're in the book of Jeremiah. We're continuing our reading through the prophets. And so this week, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapters 26 through 48. We just wrapped up one major section of chapters 1 to 25 and the prophet Jeremiah pronouncing judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah for their covenant unfaithfulness. Well, now we get into some reactions to the prophet's words here in chapter 26. Now, once again, Jeremiah tells us when all of this is happening. It's during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, there in verse 1. Now we drop down to verse 7, we begin to read the responses of the people to the prophet's words. And there in verse 1, right out of the gate, they basically say, Jeremiah, we don't like what you're saying, you're going to die. Why have you prophesied these things that the house of Judah is going to become desolate and without inhabitant? They are upset. They do not like this judgment that is being pronounced against them. But instead of cowering in some kind of politically correct fashion, Jeremiah stands up and he just continues to rail against the sins of God's people. Then we get to chapters 27. Here we have one of those images where God asks the prophet to do something kind of unusual and strange, but a symbolic gesture that shows something about the nature of the sin or the broken covenant between God and his people. And in this case, he tells Jeremiah to strap some yoke bars like that would be worn by a pair of oxen around his neck. And then he is to send word to the the kings that surround the southern kingdom. So the king of Edom and Moab and, and Tyre and Sidon. And he sends these kings a message that they are going to receive judgment. And the best thing for them to do is to accept that judgment is coming and to basically give themselves into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And then he goes on to pronounce the same prophecy to Zedekiah, king of Judah. 
He says, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and you will live. And so he's telling them, basically, if you want to live, the way to live is to put yourself under the yoke of King Nebuchadnezzar and you'll survive. But if you keep fighting against my plan and the the pronounced judgment that's coming against you, you will not survive. Then we get to chapter 28. We encounter two false prophets, Hananiah and Shemaiah. And both of these prophets basically issue a prophecy that contradicts Jeremiah's prophecy. So along comes Hananiah and he has a message for the king. And he tells him that the yoke of King Babylon has been broken and that within two years, everything's going to be put back in the Lord's house and everything's going to be set to right. So you don't really need to worry about it because the yoke has been broken directly contradicting Jeremiah's prophecy. Oh, I love the response in verse 9. Jeremiah says, As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. I love that because God doesn't call us to a blind faith. He calls us to put prophets to the test by testing their prophecies. A true prophet gives true and accurate prophecies. A false prophet gives false and inaccurate prophecies. So if we're ever wondering whether a prophet is truly of God, all we have to do is sit back and wait, see who's right. At the end of chapter 28, we find out who's right. Hananiah dies. Then we're going to encounter another false prophet toward the end of chapter 29. Also in chapter 29, we're going to see that Jeremiah sends a letter to the exiles and to those priests who are surviving and the the prophets that are still there and all the people who have been taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah tells them, in starting in verse 4, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, many of us are familiar with that last verse there, verse 11. So let's talk about this this letter that Jeremiah sends to the exiles. What is he saying? He's basically telling them to settle in, 
to live a life, make a life for yourself there in Babylon, that they need to understand that they are going to be away from the land for a while and life must carry on. And that by promoting the overall general welfare of Babylon, they will be promoting their own welfare as residents of the city of Babylon. So even though they're away from the land, God kind of gives them an outline of a strategy of how to live among these pagan people. And then he makes this promise that after 70 years, he's going to bring them back to the land. Now, our tendency as Americans, unfortunately, is that we just focus on verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans of welfare and not for evil, a future and a hope. That's a great little kind of slogan. We like to put it on t-shirts and mugs, especially around graduation time as we send off young people into the world. We want them to know that God's going with them and that God has something wonderful planned for them. Well, the problem is, is that's not really what this passage is teaching. In context, what it's talking about are the plans that God has for the Jews as a people. It's not a statement about the plans that God has for each and every individual Jew. Our mindset as Americans is that we take a statement like this and we want to personally apply it to our personal and private situation. But that's not the way that it was written by the original author. Throughout Jeremiah, we're seeing a theme develop here that God will preserve his people. In other words, the Jews will not be extinguished from the earth. They will continue to remain as a people while they're in Babylon, and then they will return to the land and be restored. Now, that's not to say that individual Jews didn't die in Babylon. And we know that some were taken as virtual indentured servants or slaves into Babylon. We read that account in the book of Daniel. So it wasn't all rosy and cheery for every single individual Jew who got carried off into captivity in Babylon. But what God is promising here is not a future and a hope and a nice happy plan for each and every individual Jew. What he's saying is, I have a plan for my people as a corporate body that as they identify with me and are connected to me and my covenant, I will preserve them. And that's what the context here is all about. It's God's promise to preserve his people. Now, when we get to chapter 30, again, we're going to see more expansion of this theme of restoration for Israel and Judah, that they will be returned to the land. And in verse 9, it talks once again about that God will raise up for them a descendant of David to be their king. And he's encouraging them. He says, you know, don't be dismayed. You'll have a lot of enemies, but I will take care of you and I will bring you back to the land. And you have this wonderful poetical section describing this restoration. And these themes will then continue into the next chapter in chapter 32, more discussion and descriptions about the restoration and how the, the mourning of Israel and Judah will turn to joy. And then we have this allusion starting in verse 31 to the new covenant. And that's a wonderful section because it's a foreshadowing that God is not only going to be restoring his people to the land, he's also going to be making a new 
covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he says in verse 32 that this will not be like the covenant that he made with their forefathers, this covenant that they broke. Even though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this covenant, in other words, the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This is such a critical passage in the Old Testament because it is the foreshadowing of what we will see fulfilled when Jesus says in the Last Supper, this is the body and blood of the new covenant. This is the first mention of that new covenant, that there will be another promise coming. And the distinguishing feature of this covenant is that no longer will it have a law that is external and written on stone, if you will. This law will be written on human hearts. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit lives within us and convicts us of our sins and reveals our sins. And under this covenant, another distinguishing feature is that all people who are part of this new covenant will be connected to God. No longer will this be a covenant that people are just born into and some are connected to God and some are not. Under the new covenant, all those who are true members of the covenant and have the Holy Spirit living in them are connected to God and are members of of that covenant. Such a beautiful picture of hope in these chapters of what's to come and what Judah can look forward to, not even just in the immediate future of the 70 years after the captivity of Babylon, but even in the more long term as they look forward to the coming of the Messiah, a king on the throne of David, and the institution of a new covenant. Then we get to chapter 32, and once again, we have another one of these word pictures where God tells Jeremiah to do something symbolic, and then he explains the meaning. And in this time, he tells him to go buy a field, and this field will one day be captured by the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. But it's a symbol that even though there will be judgment and a time of siege, that one day it will be followed by future restoration and the promise of a Messiah. When we get to chapter 33, there's another important passage restating a critical theme. Even though the people will go into exile, God has not forgotten his covenant with David. He says, in verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. 
And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So here we have this foreshadowing that not only is this righteous branch that's coming that will be fulfilled in Jesus, he's going to be a king in the house of Israel on the throne of David, but he's also going to be a priest who can offer sacrifices forever. And this is a beautiful foreshadowing of what we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, one of my favorite books. I can't wait until we get there later in the year, and we're going to pull all of these different threads together. So right now, what we have here is a recalling of the promise to David that we saw way back in the book of Second Samuel, and also a foreshadowing that not only will he be a king, but he will be a priest who can make sacrifices forever on behalf of his people. Toward the end of the week, we're also going to see Jeremiah pronounce judgment, not just against Judah, but also some of Judah's neighbors. We're going to see him give oracles against Egypt and Philistia, and Moab, and Ammon, and Eden, and Damascus, and Hatzor, and Elam, all of these neighbors that surround Judah, they're not going to get off scot-free. God's going to send judgment to all of them for being wicked, and he is going to use Babylon as a way to do that. And then we're going to see next week in the reading that then at the end, Babylon will also be judged. So, even though Babylon is acting kind of as an arm of the Lord of judgment, in the end, they will also be judged. Well, hopefully that gives you a nice little bird's eye perspective on the book of Jeremiah this week. There's a lot of great content here. We've tried to hit some of the highlights. I hope it's been helpful to you and that it'll help you along the way on your journey to be able to just stop for a minute and consider how this passage, these little sections here and there, fit into the overarching story of the entire Bible. God is unfolding his plan of redemption that he started way back in Genesis 3.15. And we're watching all the little puzzle pieces be fit together to form the big picture. And we're starting to see it fill in more and more. And then when we get to Jesus, it's really going to get exciting. But this is the groundwork to getting us to Jesus. Well, that's all for now. And I look forward to joining you again next week as we finish up the book of Jeremiah and go into its companion book, the book of Lamentations, a very sad book recounting the fall of Jerusalem. We'll see you then. So long for now. God bless. Sister, they'll play the man they won't you. Get hip to this time.